Welcome to LifeBeat. I'm your host for the day, Emily Kroll, Right to Life in Michigan's Events and Outreach Coordinator. Today's episode is our monthly feature where we take a closer look at issues dealing with abortion, infanticide, assisted suicide, and euthanasia. And while it's never pleasant to talk about the needless destruction of human life, today's discussion might be a bit more difficult to swallow than most. To be honest, When I was brainstorming earlier this week about what topic to discuss today, I kept running into a brick wall. Not that there aren't a plethora of things that need discussed, it's just that every single idea I had, from highlighting the founders of the pro-life movement to exposing the abortion industry's disregard for health code, nothing quite seemed right for this moment. Then, as it usually happens to me, Inspiration struck at the most inopportune and inconvenient moment. That is, last night, just as I was about to fall asleep. So, here I am, Friday afternoon, slightly sleep-deprived and also caffeinated, (laughs) ready to address the true story of one family's experience with abortion. So, buckle up and join me for the unfortunate tale of two sisters. In December of 2010, Nicole Adams was a single mother to three small children. The youngest was only 10 months old. When she found herself pregnant once again, Nicole was understandably lost, confused, and afraid of not being able to provide for her family. She had a history of depression and anxiety, and she really struggled to see a way out of her circumstances, so she made the difficult decision to abort her child. It was only two days after Christmas, December 27th, that Nicole entered Southwest Women's Options in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to begin the multiple-day process of ending her child's life and removing him or her from the womb. The abortionist, Shelley Sella, opted to conduct an induction abortion. An induction abortion is a late-term abortion typically performed after the 20th week of pregnancy in which the unborn child has their heart injected with a a compound called doxygen um, that causes cardiac arrest. So it stops the infant's heart, and then the mother then goes on to deliver a stillborn infant. The process usually takes one, well not one, but three to four days to complete and it is the most used method of abortion in late pregnancy. Um, It was odd that the abortionist at Southwest Women's Options decided to go with an induction abortion for Nicole because Nicole was only 17 weeks pregnant three weeks below, below the time when it's recommended that a woman undergo an induction abortion, and the typical method would have been a D&E abortion, so a dilation and evacuation, so a dismemberment abortion. It was the first day of the procedure when they inserted the laminaria into the cervix to begin dilation so during induction abortion and in a D&E abortion, laminaria, which is a 
bamboo. I believe it's made out of bamboo. It's inserted into the woman's cervix, and as it absorbs moisture, it begins dilating. Uh, With an induction abortion, they usually swap it out two or three times to make sure that the cervix is dilated more and more to eventually make room for the child to be delivered. So on the first day, laminaria are inserted, and the baby's heart is given the doxygen and given cardiac arrest. On that day, Nicole was administered an unusual combination of drugs. In addition to the typical medications to deal with pain and things like that, she was given doses of fentanyl, varicid, mifeprex. In addition to a prescription of oxycodone, she was to self-administer overnight. Fentanyl, for any of us who are paying attention to what is happening in the world today, fentanyl is a very, very strong opioid. It's 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. So the medical associations in the United States only recommend that fentanyl is used for treating cancer patients whose pain is so unmanageable that lesser strength opioids are not able to deal with it. So this abortion facility was giving a young woman doses of fentanyl. Varicid is typically used directly before a surgery. It induces drowsiness, it suppresses anxiety, and it helps to decrease an individual's memory of the procedure. So if you're going to go in and and remove an organ or saw off a limb um, and you really don't want the patient to remember what's going to be going on, um, then you would give varicid. Um, in addition to your normal anesthesia. The third medication um, on that list, mifeprex, is actually another name for mifeprostone, which is, of course, the abortion pill. It's interesting that Nicole was given the abortion pill since it is only approved for ending a pregnancy at 10 weeks or less gestation. So at 17 weeks, Nicole was well beyond the limit of when the FDA says it's even safe to use the abortion pill. So it's quite odd that the abortion facility here and the abortionist um, named Sella was, it was giving her this drug, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, we all know, of course, oxycodone is, is yet another strong opioid. So here we have on the first day of this young woman's procedure, she is given an abortificent that is supposed to only be used less than 10 weeks gestation, two different very strong opioids, one of which is synthetic and only recommended for use in cancer patients, and a drug that's going to make her drowsy, disoriented, and not really know what's going on. Interesting. The second day of the procedure, um, Sella, the abortionist, once again uh, dosed Nicole with fentanyl, varicide, and oxycodone, so another dosage of of opioids. Um, This time she also gave Nicole misoprostol. That is the labor-inducing drug. In the abortion pill regiment, it is the second medication given to induce labor and get the fetal remains out of the uterus. Again, it's interesting that they were using that um, for a 
17-week gestation baby. Typically, it's not used in a D&E abortion, but of course, they were doing an induction abortion against recommendations. So during the procedure that day, so Nicole is in, they're going to complete the procedure, they're going to remove the child from the womb. Hopefully at this point, it's already passed away, and I'm only saying hopefully because no unborn child should have to go through the pain of feeling their body ripped apart limb from limb. So abortion is horrifying, and pain, we know at this point in time, babies can feel pain. Um, So she's in for the procedure. Um, In the process of when the abortionist was removing the child from the womb, she attempted to insert some cervical dilators. Um, She either wasn't dilated enough in order to get those in, or they were being careless and clumsy. But in the process, um, Sella ended up ripping multiple lacerations in Nicole's cervix. After the procedure, she woke up in debilitating pain, didn't really know what was going on. Um, When she went into the doctors and in the hospital, they said, oh, you have lacerations on your cervix. Those healed and became scar tissues, which called other um, complications. And eventually, the doctors ended up performing a hysterectomy on Nicole. Um, And the hope was that it would help deal with some of her pain, but... To this day, she still feels discomfort, and it is now a permanent part of her life, even 10 years, 11 years now later. So it wasn't until over a decade later that Nicole learned what happened to her in Southwest Women's Options that day. When she entered the facility, she believed that she would be undergoing a D&D abortion, she signed consent forms for a DNA abortion, um, and she signed consent forms for certain medications, but um, the fentanyl and the Verised uh, were not included on that medication list. So here we have the abortionist changed the abortion procedure without notifying her patient, dosed her with powerful opioids, and then ended up mangling her cer- cervix in the process. Um, it took, again, it took 10 years, 10 years for her to even learn that she had undergone an induction abortion and not a DNA abortion. Um, she also learned 10 years later that the reason Sella changed the abortion procedure is because she wanted to procure a fetal brain that had been exposed to doxygen to be used in fetal tissue experimentation. So the abortionists at Southwest Women's Options were working with a fetal tissue procurement agency that specifically wanted a infant brain between 16 and 20 weeks gestation that had been from an infant that had had the drug-induced cardiac arrest, which explains why she suddenly changed the procedure and used a procedure that was not supposed to be done on anyone under 20 weeks gestation. Of course, Nicole, completely unaware of any of this, all she knows, she wakes up dazed and confused, doesn't really know what had happened to her for the last two days, and in pain. Lots and lots and lots of pain. Now, one would think that back in 2010, 
in a hospital when they are treating a woman for cervical lacerations that they would look into, hey, you know, how did these occur? Well, it came from an abortion. Okay, eh, that's a known side effect from abortion. We're going to forget this whole thing even happened. Um, so Sella and the other abortionists at Southwest Women's Options never faced any scrutiny over Nicole's injury. They were able to carry on as they had been um, for another seven years before their actions were finally and tragically brought to life. So that brings us to February 1st, 2017, when a 23-year-old young woman entered the doors of Southwest Women's Options for the first step in her multi-day abortion procedure. At 24 weeks pregnant, both she and her unborn baby were in perfect health. In fact, if she had had a preterm delivery that very day, her child had an overwhelming chance of survival. We know from data an unborn baby delivered at 22 weeks, a full two weeks before this baby was, they have a 60% chance of survival if given proper medical attention. So 24 weeks, we considered a viable baby. The abortion industry, even in their recent arguments before the Supreme Court for Dobbs v. Jackson, admitted that a 24-week-old baby in the womb is viable. So this is a horrible situation that this young woman feels that she is going into. So she was a server at the local Applebee's. Uh, she had dreams of, of getting an education and finding a better job, and she wasn't really feeling like a baby fit into her plans at that time. That day, Keisha Atkins had no idea she was expect experiencing her final days on Earth. She had no idea that her decision to have an abortion would not only claim the life of her unborn baby, but her own as well. So, much like her sister seven years before, Keisha was dosed with fentanyl, varicid, oxycodone, and mifeprex. Over the next three days, she was given repeated doses of the drugs, and when she complained of breathing problems, a well-known and life-threatening side effect of fentanyl, varicid, and oxycodone, the abortion facility staff ignored it and continued to drug her multiple times each day. On February 3rd, after two days of drug dosages and breathing problems, the abortion facility again gave Keisha two opioids and Varicid. When her breathing problems continued to worsen, they decided to administer Benadryl, Benadryl, not Benadryl, and abuterol before finally transferring to her to the hospital where she passed away on February 4th, 2017. Her cause of death was refractory septic cardiomyopathy. Ooh, cardiomyopathy, that's how you say English, which is it's heart failure due to a serious infection. Her infection was in her womb. After they had injected the baby with oxygen, the baby started to decay very quickly in her womb, and it caused a serious infection that made it to her bloodstream and then eventually to her heart. It's now 
five years after the death of Keisha Atkins, and we are finally, finally getting to the truth behind her death, and it's only been through the grueling process of litigation for a wrongful death suit against Southwest Women's Options that her family and the world has learned about the dangerous experiments taking place in the facility. Shannon Carr, Carmen Landau, and Shelley Sella are all abortionists that work their trade at the Southwest Women's Options in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That abortion clinic is owned and operated by the infamous late-term abortionist Curtis Boyd. Boyd is known throughout the country as a man whose abortion facilities have a tendency to leave women injured. During the time of Keisha's death, Sella and Landau were experimenting on hundreds of women by administering mifeprostone during late-term abortions. They later published a study on the results. Their goal appeared to be finding a way to speed up the abortion process the idea being that the faster you can complete a late-term abortion, the more you can get done and the more money you can make. They worked in that experiment. They were working in partnership with staff at the University of California, San Francisco. In the study or experimentation, there were 501 women, all past 24 weeks pregnant, and 48 of them were minor children. Keisha Atkins' death was included in their medical research article. The staff at Southwest Women's Options willfully lied to women who came to them for abortions. Some women, like Nicole Atkins, underwent procedures that they did not consent to, and some, like her sister Keisha, were involved in dangerous experimentation without their knowledge or consent. For any other outpatient, patient facility, the gross negligence and behavior of the staff would have warranted a criminal investigation, or at the very least a cease and desist order. But the abortion industry operates under a privileged status, and Southwest Women's Options remains open to this day. The horror that the Atkins family has experienced due to the actions of Sella, Carr, Lando, and Boyd cannot go unanswered. One sister was grievously injured, and the details of what her body was submitted to during her abortion did not come to light until the investigation into her own sister's death almost a decade later came to light. Perhaps if the abortion facility had come clean back in 2010, then Keisha would still be alive to this day. The story of the Atkins sisters is a tale of heartbreak, despair, and corruption. Their lives and their bodies were experimented on and then discarded without a second thought. The actions of the abortionists who deemed themselves and their careers more important than the lives of desperate women must be accounted for. They must be brought to justice. Unfortunately, Keisha and Nicole are not the only women who have faced this kind of treatment from the abortion industry. Every year, women die from late-term abortion procedures. Every year. And in some cases, 
women like Nicole are left maimed for the rest of their lives. A couple of weeks ago, we shared a story about the young woman who went in for a late-term abortion in Washington, D.C., and almost died from a massive hemorrhage when the abortionist punctured her uterus and shoved the, the head of the baby up into her abdominal cavity. There was a woman a couple years ago in Alabama where the abortionist punctured her uterus, was rooting around in her insides, and ended up pulling on the tendons in her hip. She's lucky to be able to walk, but she lost her uterus in the process. Keisha and Nicole have a, a horrible story, and the pain that their family has gone through is... I don't even have a word. It's, it's incomprehensible that there is no name for the kind of evil that happened at Southwest Women's Options in the last decade. And the fact that they are still allowed to be open, still allowed to commit abortion procedures, is sickening. One often overlooked part of the story of Keisha and Nicole is that the abortion that took Keisha's life, the abortion that the, they were using for experimentation was paid for by the taxpayers in the state of New Mexico. Because of their laws and the ability for Medicaid to be able to pay for abortion procedures, it was people in New Mexico, pro-life people and pro-choice people, that paid for, paid for the abortion that took a young woman's life. If that funding had not been there, if she had not been able to get the abortion for free, it's possible that Keisha would still be alive today. One day, and it is my hope and my prayer and the thing that we all are working towards, one day the abortion industry will come crashing down, crashing down under the weight of the evil it has committed. And it is evil. We cannot forget the story of the Atkins sisters. We cannot forget the other dozens of women who have lost their lives to abortion, both early abortion and late abortion. The abortion pill, D&E procedures, induction abortion procedures, and abortion experimentation. We also can't forget that in addition to these women, the ones who have died, the ones who have been injured, and the ones who have emotional scars that they will carry with them for the rest of their lives, there's also over 61 million children who have lost their lives. That's 61 million futures that have gone unwritten, generational lines ended. So, I am waiting for the day, and I am praying for the day, and I am excited for the day when we finally see an end to the evil of abortion. People can talk all they want about how it's all about freedom. It's about a woman's choice. It's her body. It's her decision. But that doesn't cover up the fact 
that there are human lives, human lives at stake in this. It's not just one person's body. It's two bodies. It's not just one life. It's two lives and the lives of generations in the future. So, again, let's not forget the tale of the Atkins sisters. Let's hope that with the continued investigations into Southwest women's options that some form of justice will be done for this. Currently, um, the abortionists in the facility are under investigation for a wrongful death lawsuit. So it's not necessarily a criminal investigation. It's more of a wrongful procedure investigation, but hopefully it will lead to criminal charges in the future and that the Atkins family can see justice done for the harm that was done to their daughters. So that concludes our tale of the two Atkins sisters today. Thank you for joining me for this feature episode of Life Beat, and I hope you will join us again next week as we continue to discuss the latest pro-life